This podcast is brought to you by Save Amarillo Pack, asking you to vote against Propositions A, B, and C in the November Amarillo Municipal Bond election. Amarillo is broke. We don't need more debt. For more information about the bonds or to support Save Amarillo Pack, visit SaveAmarilloNow.com. Political ad paid for by Save Amarillo Pack, Hobart Brown, Treasurer. This is the Live in West Texas podcast. I am your host, Thomas Warren, and thank you so much for being with us this week. Now, on to the program. Thank you very much for joining us this week on the Live in West Texas podcast, and we are excited to welcome the Democratic nominee for the United States House of Representatives, our neighbors to the south, a district that includes Lubbock, um, Abilene, and many other areas. He is Tom Watson, and we are excited to get to talk to him about his race. Uh, but before we get started, Tom, how are you today, sir? I'm pretty good. It's been a uh, a long day, but uh, we uh, we survived, and so we're ready to go and talk to you. Well, I am thrilled to have you on here. Uh, you know, we before we got on the phone here today recording, uh, we were discussing how it's been a strange election cycle, and uh, probably the elephant in the room is COVID-19, and I know you were actually just uh, featured in a recent news report, according to your social media, about how to run a campaign during COVID-19, and so I'd like to talk about all of that here in just a moment, but before we get started on all of that, would you mind just telling our listeners about your background and why did you decide to run for Congress this year? Well, uh, let me uh, just start at the very beginning. Uh, I grew up in a little town in northeast Texas, Roxton, Texas. It's in Lamar County. It's about, oh, 20 miles south, southwest of uh, Paris, Texas. And I went to school at Roxton and graduated there. And uh, I guess I'm giving away age, but 1962, and went on to Morris College in Jacksonville, which is a uh, two-year college. And then the University of Texas uh, took, got my undergraduate degree in 1966. And then in 1967 in March, um, I reported for duty with the United States Marine Corps, and I spent uh, 13 months of that tour in uh, Vietnam, and that was uh, from October uh, 1967 uh, through October of 1968. Uh, then after that, uh, because I was coming back from Vietnam, I got an early release and then went back to uh, University of Texas. Uh, uh, I got married in, uh, uh, in December. I left uh, uh, the Marine Corps in uh, 
the West Coast in the end of October, uh, got to Texas in November, down to Austin, and then we got married in Corpus in December of, uh, of 1968. And uh, so uh, then we went back to Austin. Uh, I went to graduate school for a semester and then law school for, uh, uh, well, two and a half years because I went uh, year-round and uh, graduated in uh, 71 and uh, or then got fitted uh, to the bar uh, in, in 72, and we moved to Freeport, Texas, uh, which is on the Gulf Coast, a long way from the Black land of Northeast Texas, and I worked there for the district attorney, the city of Freeport, uh, and then in private practice in, uh, uh, I guess, about 1976, and we stayed uh, in that area of Missouri County up through 2005, and in 05, we moved to Abilene. My, our daughter, Claire, uh, went to law school at Texas Tech, and she met uh, Sam Happy, and they got married in 1999, and after graduating, uh, went to Abilene to uh, practice law. Uh, in about 05, I was in a situation where I could make a change. So we decided to move to Abilene, and we've been here in Abilene since then. Uh, I've been practicing law with uh, Claire and Sam, and then uh, Amanda, my wife, has been uh, ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church, and so we attend uh, Heavenly Rest Episcopal Church here in Abilene. I have uh, two two others, two sons. Morgan is the oldest, and he's an accountant in uh, Dallas. And then Michael, the youngest, is a lawyer in Austin. So that's pretty well sums it all up. Uh, so I'm curious. You know, you've had a long career, and um, you have military experience. You have experience as an attorney. How have your experiences qualified you uh, to represent the people of Texas and the United States House of Representatives? Well, uh, first of all, let me, uh, I guess, finish the story because what I didn't really get to was why I decided to uh, file for this office and run. And basically, uh, the reason was Donald Trump. I was very frustrated uh, with his uh, term as president. Uh, I voted. Uh, for every presidential election in 1968, won some, lost some, but uh, in that period of time, I've never had a person who I thought just did not have the interest of the country in his either heart or mind. Uh, because to me, Donald Trump is interested in nobody but Donald Trump. So I felt like that by filing uh, in this race, uh, where Jody Arrington is the 
incumbent congressman, and he prides himself on being with Donald Trump 97% of the time. Uh, I thought that perhaps I could offer an alternative and get some votes out for the uh, Democrat uh, ticket, uh, both at the top of the ticket and for Congress, and it might help uh, the Democrats carry uh, carry Texas, whether uh, I won uh, the congressional race or not. If we got enough votes out to carry Texas, I would have I felt like it would have been a worthwhile effort. Uh, of course, then by February, we had this virus, and that upended everything. And I think it made, uh, on the whole, uh, Mr. Trump uh, completely vulnerable. Uh, as now we know, he lied to the American people. Uh, he said this was a virus that was just going like flu and going away. But we now know that he's uh, uh, told a writer that's writing a book that... Uh, he knew that wasn't true, and he was just trying to downplay it. So my question to Donald Trump is, how many people died because you decided to downplay uh, this virus? And by extension, Jody Arrington is as responsible as the Donald Trump is because Mr. Arrington supported him all the way never questioned him, never took him to task, and is just now still marching right behind Donald Trump. So the reason for for uh, filing was to try to help get Democratic votes out, and now the race is entirely different. It looks like that, uh, in the way I see it, uh, Trump is not going to get reelected. And so we need to work on getting the congressional representation in Texas to match the national ticket. So uh, I, I had one reason for signing up, but now it's, it's turned into a, an entirely different ball game. Sure. Uh, well, so on my previous question about uh... – your experiences, how they prepared you to serve as a congressman. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, what benefits would the residents of your district see uh, from having someone with such a diverse resume and portfolio of experience, such as yourself, representing them in Congress? Well, first of all, uh, as a lawyer, I have had a lot of different experiences uh, I have uh, worked in district attorney's office, prosecuted criminal cases. Uh, I have worked as a private attorney representing individuals on both sides of all kinds of issues. So this gives me a background of insight into almost every issue and question. So I feel like that that qualifies me uh, as far as uh, political uh, work. 
I've always been active, and in uh, I've worked for John Hill when he was running for governor. Uh, Bob Gabbage was a congressman from the uh, Brazoria County area. I worked. Uh, I worked for him, and I spent uh, four or six years as county chair of the Democratic Party in uh, Brazoria County. So I think all of that uh, uh, ties together. Uh, I've always been interested in uh, issues involving uh, national issues as well as local issues. And I think uh, running for Congress and serving in, in Congress is the perfect place to work on both sides, both national issues and, and local issues, because a, a congressional representative has to have the background in both areas. And I believe that uh, uh, my experience, uh, interest, uh, leads me there. Uh, so that's why I felt like I was certainly qualified to do it. Uh, well, let's talk for a moment about COVID-19. Uh, this is the issue dominating all of the headlines, uh, and it certainly has changed the approaches to campaigning. Right, in a moment, I'd like to dig into the national response to it and then the comments by President Trump that you mentioned a moment ago. Uh, but I'm curious, just from your standpoint as a candidate, how has COVID-19 changed the way uh, that you've been running your campaign? Well, uh, the basic is that uh, you know political campaigns have always been based on personal contact, person to person, talking to people, uh, visiting with different uh, people in different areas, and so uh, you normally have done that by going around and talking to people visiting them in person. But uh, this has changed all of that. And so everything has gone to be online, uh, virtual uh, uh, conversations with Zoom, uh, Facebook, uh, Internet, uh, all of those things. Uh, so it's a... It certainly is a different campaign than what I thought it was. Uh, one of the things that uh, I haven't been able to do that I had really planned on doing because it was something that I always saw people running for office doing was that uh, was going to uh, the local uh, county seat and especially in rural counties, just walking through the courthouse, saying hello to people, and, uh, asking them if they had any questions or any issues they wanted to deal with. And just, you know, if you go to the courthouse, you get a pretty good idea of uh, what uh, people are talking about and what they're interested in. But, you know, really haven't done that, haven't been able to do that. Uh, all of the courthouses are... Um, at least uh, here in, in Abilene and uh, in Lubbock, uh, they uh, want, you know you have to 
have your either have your temperature taken or answer some questions, you know, before you can uh, can get in the door. And so uh, you have to have some business. Have to have a reason for being there. So it it has uh, made a, a great deal of difference. Um, so you know, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know if it if it makes a difference, if it's an advantage. I know it's much harder simply to get name recognition uh, in this world than it was it is in a regular world of a campaign. So, uh, but we have all these uh, uh, new. Uh, tools of communication, Facebook, uh, internet, uh, texting, and all of these things. And there's uh, good in it in that, you know, it's available. Uh, There's bad in it in that sometimes these Facebook messages tend to be brief and perhaps a little more blunt than uh, people would... uh, say in a live face-to-face meeting and uh, I have to sometimes read things and I want to immediately respond and have to think about it. Do I really need to respond to this right now or do I need to think about it a little bit? So it it is a different world and we're still learning and I don't know that things will go back the way they were. There'll be some hybrid, you know, uh, combination of the two. I guess let's address the national news story that we're seeing right now on the day we're recording this, and that is dealing with the president's comments to Bob Woodward about COVID-19. You mentioned that a few moments ago. And I know the president has come under quite a bit of scrutiny for making those comments about how it uh, was a deadly virus and it has been contrasted with his previous comments that it would uh, disappear. It'd be like the flu or some kind of seasonal illness. But overall, including those comments, but overall, uh, we've seen a lot of debate. We've seen a lot of controversy about the way COVID-19 has been handled from the local level to the state level to the federal level. Um, And on the local and state level, as a congressman, there's not... A whole lot that uh, you might be able to change. It's kind of like the mask mandate fight uh, that Greg Abbott finds himself in right now. A congressman probably can't get too involved in that. But from the federal level, have you been satisfied with the federal government's response to COVID-19? And if not, uh, what do you think the federal government should be doing differently today? Well, first of all, uh, you I just don't see how you could be satisfied with the response of the president and uh, the White House because they have continuously played it down. They said it's not serious uh, when it is serious. And there are federal uh, things that that could be done. And the president should have been doing those things. He should have been limiting... uh, exposure and contact and not trying to open things up. If in May and June, when things had come 
down. It looked like that it was getting under control, but all of a sudden, all we did was open everything up. And in particular, uh, Governor Abbott, uh, first of all, he was opening up, and then he found out that uh, the outbreak was continuing to spread. So he tried to shut down again, and it just it, it didn't work. And if we had kept it shut down through May and June, we would probably be out of it now. At least we would have a hottest fighting chance, but with the president and his subversion of everything that anybody wanted to do, uh, it just allowed it to take off. And you know, Donald Trump didn't have any anybody's best interest but his own. And he's usually wrong about those. It would have been in his best interest to get the virus under control. He didn't. He didn't have enough sense to see that. Uh, so I, I don't. I think there are a lot of things the federal government could do in in the area of of uh, you know, one making funds available to uh, uh, to get all of the equipment necessary to fight these battles. But uh, Donald Trump didn't do that either. And then uh, we had an original uh, one stimulus package, and then, but now we the Republicans, Democrats are fighting over it, and we need to do it again on some level. But by the same token, we've got to be financially responsible to uh, have a an economy once we get out of it. But we've got to be sure we're out of it. And there has been nothing on the federal level by the Trump administration to really try to get it done. I don't know what they want. I don't know what they're trying to do. And the problem is they don't either. They, they're just all over the place. And they thought that they could get away with it and have an election, and he could win, but he's not, I, I will tell you, I do not believe he's going to win the election. Uh, but I will scroll down one of the, uh, on the internet of the state-by-state uh, -state, uh, polling, and he is over 50% in only two or three states. I don't think he can win the election at that, and that he has done nothing to change that perception. He's still out there doing the same old thing. He's still trying to put fear into people. Uh, so uh, I can't see how he can win. He might do it, but I don't believe he will. Well, let's talk about uh, your campaign for a moment and the issues you'd like to focus on. If you were elected, what would be the top three priorities that you would want to address immediately once taking office? Well, the first thing is to do is 
analyze and figure out where we are uh, if we assume that by middle of the year of next year that we will have the virus under control, then where are we financially from the, the federal government point of view? And also we've got to be looking at what the states have done and what the local governments are doing and how are we going to reorganize things so that everybody gets back, put back on a sound financial footing. And one of the things we've got to do is the minimum wage has got to go up. We can't have we can't have an economy that works with people getting seven dollars an hour. Uh, the minimum wage has to be stepped up, and it needs to go up to fifteen dollars an hour. That may have to be over two or three years, but it has to be a plan, and there has to be uh, laws passed so that everybody knows what's going to happen. In the Trump administration, nobody knows what it was going to be tomorrow because they just bounce all over the world. And the other thing is that uh, we've got to take a real hard look at the tax structure because the Trump administration has destroyed the tax structure that uh, was in place, and we're not raising enough money. Another thing is, I think Trump is trying to destroy Social Security. He's used the present uh, difficulties to Authorized stop to collecting Social Security taxes. If you stop the Social Security money coming in, then you don't have any money to pay out. And so what I see as his plan is he did that through the end of the year. Then he wants to come back and extend it. And if he extends it over a couple of years, there won't be any money coming into Social Security. So he will, in effect, destroy it. And I believe that's part of his goal. And we need, but what we need to do is we need to get rid of Trump and then we need to review our financial situation, get our current financial situation in place, and then make plans to keep Social Security and the other other uh, government agencies in business so they could do the job to help people. And we need to review the tax structure. Uh, the tax structure places all of the problems at the lower end of the tax structure. We need higher taxes at the top end. And I know nobody wants to say, Oh, I'm for higher taxes, but we've got to review it and we, we've got to have those people, the people that are making the most money are the people that are benefiting from the policies of this nation. And so they need to be paying 
their appropriate share of that so that the tax burden then doesn't all fall on the lower income levels. We, we've got to review it, and we need to work on it. So those are things that I think we need to do, and that sounds like to me to be a pretty tall order for the next couple of years. Well, let's talk about another issue that we hear quite a bit about whenever there's a federal election, especially in Texas, and that is the issue of immigration. Of course, perhaps the elephant in the room whenever we discuss immigration is the border wall. Uh, So I'm curious, do you support some kind of immigration reform package? Do you think that's something that we need to do? And do you support the border wall? Well, now, you just can't say yes or no to those things. What you've got to do is you've got to have a balanced policy. We can't be separating children from parents. Whatever we're doing, we can't be just throwing kids away. And that's what this administration's doing. Now, the people that live on the border, by and large, I don't believe want a border wall. They want enforcement, but enforcement doesn't mean this big old wall that's sticking up is taking away private property. So we've got to come up with a plan that will uh, allow for people to come legally to work. We've strictly managed to to put people in the situation where the only way they can come across is by being illegal. We need to fix that system so that they can come across legally, not separate children from their parents, and, you know, enforce the the, uh, immigration uh, statutes but do it in a humane way so that we don't have all of these mass uh, incarcerations and overload the immigration system and the court system so that it can't, it cannot handle the situation. We need to, it needs to be revised all the way up and down. And the immigration is not the, to my mind, is not the primary issue facing this country. The primary issue facing this country is taking care of all of the citizens that are here and figure out and work on a humane method of allowing people to come to this country. Because we can't just shut the door. We, we have to allow people that want to come in and they want to work to have a an avenue to do that. But this this wall is a, is a farce, it's a waste of money. So I am I am not in favor of wasting taxpayers' dollars on the border wall when it's never worked, it's not gonna work, it's not enforceable. You can't put the wall down in a lot of places. So I'm, I'm not uh, 
I'm not in favor of the border wall. I'm in favor of reasonable enforcement of and making it, it possible for people to come to this country, but legally and not separating families. Well, and another issue dealing with the topic you discussed a moment ago, uh, which is the well-being of the people who are in the country, I am curious, uh, what kind of reforms do you think we need to the health care system in this country? Well, the first thing is uh, we need to do things that uh, keep health care available to rural America because we're having rural hospitals closed. We're having rural uh, medical facilities uh, closing so that the uh, doctors and other medical personnel can't stay there because they can't make a living. So we've got to work to keep rural health care. Now, one of the things that the governor of Texas could do would be to open up uh, Medicaid to lower-income people. He could do that without costing Texas taxpayers money. That's a federal program, and all he needs to do is authorize the expansion of Medicare. And that would have the effect of making rural health care available and have a financial base so that those people that are delivering the care could earn a fair living and doing it because now we're we're taking people out of the small towns and making them go to Amarillo, Lubbock, or Abilene to get health care. And then we have emergencies where we have to spend money to send a helicopter out to transport them because they get too sick uh, to be transported uh, by ambulance or by car. And so we're wasting, wasting our efforts and our time. We need to plan rural health care, and we need to make it available to, so that everyone uh, can have health care. That, that's one of our significant problems uh, right now, and we need to work on it in this administration has simply ignored it. Congressman Jody Arrington has simply ignored it. Uh, he may talk about it every once in a while, but he has not worked to get rural health care in a situation where it can be, uh, be provided at a reasonable uh, compensation to those who are providing the health care. And so we end up spending money on emergency treatment and transportation to people, whereas if we had the health care available at the, on the local level, uh, a lot of that could be cut down. But, you know, uh, I just don't think Jody Arrington cares. That's the whole point. You mentioned a moment ago uh, the rural hospitals and 
some of the issues facing rural communities. In your district, in the 19th Congressional District of Texas, it's much like the 13th District is up here, where a lot of the communities who uh, do vote in the district are rural areas. And so I'm curious, if you're elected, you're going to be representing a district that will have a significant number of rural communities. Uh, So what kind of challenges uh, would you face as a prospective congressman representing a uh, at least partly rural district versus if you represented an urban district, and how will you face those challenges as a congressman? Well, first of all, I understand living in a rural area because that's where I grew up. I grew up in a rural area so that I know what farmers uh, face uh, because I grew up on a farm. I know what businesses in small town space because you know we had to deal with that's where we had to go uh, to get our groceries uh, to get the medicines and prescriptions filled so I understand the problems the first thing is open up uh, Medicaid to everyone and the governor has the authority to do that. So that that's number one. Number two is trying to find uh, ways to make uh, rural health care available through either uh, telecommunications uh, where the doctor can see somebody uh, in a rural setting, uh, the doctor might be in Abilene or Amarillo, uh, but uh, sort of like Zoom, Zoom medical care. But that's not going to be the answer to everything. There, there are going to be times where you've got to have a doctor and a patient together on a person-to-person basis. So we've got to see what we can do to make those things available uh, so the doctor can know once a week or twice a week uh, to Stanford, Texas, or uh, Claude, or wherever that they need to go to to make, uh, to provide for uh, medical care. So it's a matter of, of trying to solve a problem. And the current administration and the current congressman don't even see a problem, much less care about solving the problem. Uh, So, you know, the first thing you've got to do is recognize the question. Second thing is you've got to define the issues. And the third thing is you've got to find the best solution that you can for that problem. That's the three-step approach that you have to do to rural health care in all things. There's, there's not going to be one answer. There's, there's gonna, we're going to have to make some choices. And sometimes those choices are not going to satisfy everybody and Frankly, in terms of medical care, medical care, 
Sometimes they may not be sufficient. Somebody may have to go to Abilella, uh, Abilene or Amarillo to, to get their health care. So we're not going to solve everything, but we've got to do the best we can for the most people that we can. In another issue, we always get questions about this anytime we have a federal candidate on, and I'm curious uh, what your take is on this. Um, the issue is gun control, uh gun regulations, um, and related issues. So from your point of view, should Congress pass additional gun regulations? Do you think that's something we need? That's the first part of the question. And the other part of the question I'm curious about is, I know this has been discussed in the media, and so I want to hear your take on this. Do you think that the United States needs to put the assault weapons ban back into place? Marine Corps gave me an M-16 when I went to Vietnam. I gave it back before I left. And I have not seen a need for an M-16 since I have been back in the United States. That's the best answer I can give you. Because we don't need people carrying M-16s or other assault weapons around uh, and trying to intimidate people because sooner or later, and recently it's been sooner, somebody gets shot and killed. So I'm not in favor of M-16s and assault weapons. Uh, Now, whether we put an absolute ban on them or whether we regulate, that's, that's a different issue. And I'm not for taking anybody's hunting guns away from them, but nobody needs a 15-bullet uh, magazine uh, in, a, in a weapon like an M16. They're just, there's not a need for it. You don't need it. You, you can use your hunting weapon, and so... Uh, I know this is probably not going to be. It's not a popular decision in in uh, in Texas. People want to talk about their guns, but uh, I'm uh, I just tell you that I don't see a need for an M16 or any comparable assault weapon. There's no point in it. If you wanna, if you want one, if you want to shoot one, and you want to go to a gun range and lock it up and go out to that gun range and shoot it, okay. But you know, you don't need to be carrying one around. So I'm curious. You mentioned a moment ago, a little bit earlier in the uh, in the podcast, about the need to get Democrats elected statewide, and that is an issue that we are seeing a lot of Democrats, especially Democrats running for the state house, discussing. And so, and also we have a potentially competitive presidential race in Texas this year. Uh, So from your point of view and from your campaign, how will you be helping Democrats win races up and down the ballot in the 19th district and across Texas? Well, first of all, uh, 
we have a competitive presidential race in Texas. Uh, Joe Biden is slightly ahead on most of the polls. And given the most recent doings of this president, I think he'll, I think Joe Biden will carry Texas. So uh, I think it's competitive. And I think Democrats all up and down uh, the ballot are coming out with a, a unified message. And Donald Trump has made it real easy to do that. He's made it easy for Democrats to unify behind getting rid of Donald Trump and supporting the Democratic national ticket. So I believe that Donald Trump has helped us get unified. I believe he's helped me in my race uh, because of his conduct is making people take a look at uh, this race and look at what I'm saying and look at what my opponent is saying. Because all my opponent is saying is everything Trump's good. Everything Trump does is okay. So I think people are starting to think about that. So I think the Republicans have made Texas competitive. Uh, and it's going to be up to the Democrats to take advantage of that situation and get as many elected as possible. Because what's going to happen, the next legislative session is going to be uh, the issue of redistricting is going to be the main question. And the last time it happened, in 2011, the Republicans were in control, and the Democrats are still suffering from being uh, put in districts that uh, run from, you know, the, the, the 19th district runs from Abilene to Lubbock, and then the Amarillo goes all the way north, and then south of us, uh, we, it goes to uh, Midland, Odessa, and San Angelo. Uh, so the redistricting is going to be the big issue at the next legislative session. So it is important to elect Democrats to the state house and the state senate. Uh, so for anyone listening to this who they might be sitting there saying, you know, I'm undecided on this race. I really like what Tom Watson has to say, but I need to be sold on this candidate. Give them your final elevator pitch. Why are you the man they need to send to represent them in Washington this year? Well, I tell you what, this is... I don't have ambition to go to higher office. This is it. Uh, this will be, if I am uh, elected to be the congressional representative, that's all I'm interested in. I'm not going to be trying to build 
a resume for a higher office. That's it. All I'm going to be doing is doing what I believe is in the interest of Congressional District 19. That's number one. Number two, I don't owe anybody anything. I haven't taken any money from any big donors. There's uh, all the money I've gotten has come from friends, people who know me, people who respect me, people who know I will be honest and fair in what I do. So uh, that's what I will tell you. That's what I would tell anybody is I'm not trying to either get higher political office. I'm not trying to build some resume so I could get some cushy corporate job, uh, not having to do anything, but maybe give out money to other politicians or something. I'm not, I'm not in the running for any of those things. The only thing that I'm looking for is to be the congressional representative for District 19. That's the highest ambition I have. If somebody wants to get involved with your campaign, if they want to support you, how can they do that? Well, they can go. We're all over Facebook. It's... Uh, uh, Tom Watson for Congress 2020, and that's uh, Facebook, and then also uh, web page, the uh, same thing. So they can, we're not hard to find, so you can find us, and there's information on there, uh, how to get in touch with us. So uh, we would be glad to talk to you, and either on the internet or in person, my phone, uh, we'll, 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 we are there. So we can be found, uh, uh, on, like I say, on the internet and, uh, on Facebook. Uh, I live in Abilene and I'm not hard to find. Uh, you can look in the, any kind of lawyer's directory and you'll find me. So, uh, I can be found, and I'll be looking for you. Tom Watson, we really do appreciate you coming on here to do this interview with us this evening, and we wish you all the best in your campaign in District 19. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much to my listeners and to my guests this week, as always. For those of you who want to learn more about what's going on in the Texas Panhandle, we encourage you to go to www.amarillopioneer.com for all of your local news needs, including election coverage and what's going on in your communities. Amarillopioneer.com or Amarillo Pioneer on social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you check. Until next week, thank you very much for joining us, and we hope that you have a wonderful West Texas week.